Sally edited my intro. Well, it's what's for him. Do you guys want to? I have it on my phone, so. Did you see Sally's message? No. Ben is joining us for the critique, which we will somehow do with pizza afterwards. There you go. I told her we needed to. I was like, we can't. I thought we were doing BOAB, so I have like a whiskey cocktail in the fridge. You're not on air. Fuck. <laughs> we're not on air. You're just, your mics are live, so it's and okay. Everybody in the room is here. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's May 12th. I'm David Marquez. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. On today's show, New Yorkers think the rent is too damn high, and they want someone to do something about it. We are here today urging the governor to pass good cause eviction legislation now. Now! And the number of mosquitoes is at record high. While the city is looking for solutions, the answer may be simpler. All I can suggest is buying a can of off and using it. Labor unions are making a comeback. On Long Island, Starbucks workers are organizing with national progressive support. Well, if you consider employees partners, you don't break their efforts to form a union. And as a treat for our last show, we'll have four personal stories from our reporters. 
All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Emergency. She says she's asking President Biden to consider the Defense Production Act to get more manufacturers online. In eastern Ukraine, Ukrainian forces are pushing Russian troops away from the city of Kharkiv. NPR's Jason Bobian reports the offensive is allowing some businesses to reopen and some residents to return to Ukraine's second largest city. At the Kharkiv train station, police still don't allow passengers to wait on the platforms or in the grand arrivals hall due to the threat of incoming mortars. Passengers wait underground until just before a train pulls in. Ala Usova was arriving home to Kharkiv with her main coon cat, Busika, tucked under her arm. She'd fled the city more than two months ago to the relative safety of a town an hour west of here. She says her neighbors have been telling her over the phone that the security situation in Kharkiv is getting better. Even if some shelling continues, Usova says more than anything right now, she wants to be back in her own apartment. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Elliot Chaparelli. Starting in September, New York City public schools will screen students for dyslexia. In a pilot program, students at 80 middle schools and 80 elementary schools will be given literacy tests to identify dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities. New York City Mayor Eric Adams and Schools Chancellor David Banks made the announcement at one of the pilot program schools in Harlem. Adams recalled his own struggles with dyslexia. It goes through life and it haunts you forever until you can get the proper treatment that you deserve. And every public school student deserves to uh, have the ability to read at a high level. The Department of Education plans to expand the program to at least one school in each district by 2023. The mayor also signed two new pieces of legislation today. One requires certain employers in New York City to post a salary range with all job postings. The other establishes business improvement districts in the Bronx's Castle Hill and Manhattan's West Village. Those will lead to special improvement projects and host events. New York Attorney New York Attorney General Letitia James is suing three bus companies claiming they violated city and state idling laws. The suit says buses from the companies idled outside of schools and bus yards, mostly in low-income communities. The lawsuit seeks monetary compensation and a court order ensuring compliance with the idling laws. A trial date has been set for former New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin. The trial for bribery will take place in January of 2023. Benjamin resigned from his post as New York's second-in-command earlier this year after pleading not guilty. New York City's first-ever Asian, American, and Pacific Islander Cultural and Heritage Parade is set for this Sunday. The parade will kick off on West 44th Street and head 10 blocks up 6th Avenue. Elliot Chaparelli, Columbia Radio News. Last week, excuse me, um, very sorry. Last week, the draft of a decision in the Supreme Court case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health was leaked. If it's correct, Roe v. Wade will be overturned, and so will the nationwide right to terminate a pregnancy. But three New York state bills to protect those who come here to evade abortion bans back home have been proposed. If passed, they'll prevent residents of states where abortion is illegal from prosecution and extradition for getting an abortion in New York. I spoke with Carol Sanger, a professor at Columbia Law School whose work focuses on reproductive rights, and I asked her about what these bills might look like in practice. 
always been a matter of state law. That's why we have different speeding limits in different states and different things are crimes. And so this abortion is now one of those things that is up to the legislature of a state to choose. Under these laws, people who send abortion pills, say, from a state like New York, they cannot be prosecuted? You'd have to ask, where is the crime occurring? If we have Texas and they say you can't receive abortion pills through the mail, that's one kind of crime. Another would be that for the sender. I suppose you could receive it and not use it unless they pass special legislation saying there can be no uh, transportation of any means of abortion through the mail. And I'm sure states will do that. That, that will have to go to a court to decide, is that constitutional? Uh, right now, the FDA has made the mailing of uh, abortion pills legal until the end of the pandemic. So for right now, the matter is settled, but it likely will become unsettled. Say a state like Mississippi or Texas wanted to challenge the law in New York. Is that even possible? And if it is, how might they try to do it? My initial thought is no, a person from Texas can't come into New York and say, we don't like, we don't like your speed limit. We're going to argue that they're what, unconstitutional? Well, that won't work because first of all, it's up to the state of New York to regulate criminal conduct. Although Texas did do that in saying, in it's rather bizarre piece of legislation saying that anyone anywhere in the country could bring an action against anyone in Texas who performs or assists in performing an abortion after six weeks, opening up their state law specifically to out-of-staters. But that's not the general rule. So even though abortion is codified in New York, could this decision in Dobbs have any sort of impact on New Yorkers who seek to get an abortion? No, not if they seek to get it in New York. If, for example, Alito's decision had said something else. If it had said, you know, we've been reading over Roe v. Wade and we see that Rosa's, the fetus is not a person for purposes of the Constitution. And we think that's wrong. We think the fetus is a person. Now, if that is what the opinion had said, we know as a matter of every state law, killing a person is a form of murder. So that in that case, that would have gone over the whole United States. But that's not what they did. They, they were content to leave it to each individual state. So no, New Yorkers have well protected the reproductive rights of girls and women in the state. Professor, oh, that was Carol Sanger, professor of Columbia Law School. In New York City, it's said you're either looking for a job or an apartment. After some residents left during COVID lockdowns, the New Yorkers who have stayed were offered lower rents by landlords eager to fill units. But while the pandemic hasn't ended, the brief era of slightly cheaper rent is now over for most. Reporter Sarah Yokobitis has more on the renters desperately searching for a deal. Emily Russell and her roommate Remy Arena moved into their apartment last summer on Mulberry Street. It was two bedrooms for $2,200 a month. A great deal, they thought, but there were drawbacks. We were very surprised when we came in. It was a lot smaller than we thought it was going to be. <laughs> I almost had a panic attack when we walked in because it was tiny. Uh, street easy photos lie to you. <laughs> yeah, one of the bedrooms that I'm looking at right now we thought was pretty spacious. And when you go inside, if I were, I'm like five six, five seven. If I lay down on the floor, I can touch all the walls. <laughs> <laughs> like, like starfish-wise, yeah. you can touch all the ends of the walls. Over the last year, they've grown to love their little place. There are exposed brick walls, wood floors, and lots of sunlight. But when the lease ended, their landlord insisted on exercising a clause in their contract. The rent was going up by 60 percent. 
that's an extra $750 a month each. I think it's worse right now. I've talked to lots of people who are being um, priced out of their apartments, like a lot of people I know. And just walking around the city, I literally hear people talking about moving. I, I don't know if it's I'm more attuned to it or if right now lots of people are moving, but it's hard to find an apartment right now. They're reluctant to leave the neighborhood they've come to love, but they can't justify paying the increased rate. It's super exploitative. That's the word like that I keep coming to out of my anger. Rent hikes are a major problem right now for New Yorkers like Arena and Russell, who took cheaper COVID rates when the pandemic negatively impacted the city's housing market. Dr. Andy Beveridge is a Queens College professor and demographic expert. He's been studying the city's change of address data over the past two years to determine how many New Yorkers left during the pandemic, in addition to how many have returned to the city. I think it's fair to say that based on the change of addresses, there is a people, people do, you know, people did come back. Whether everybody will ultimately come back, I don't know. Beveridge estimates that about three-fourths of the people who left during the first year of the pandemic have since returned. But the number of people who have come back has made the local rental market even more crowded than usual. Broker fees recently crept back, too. The additional fees of around 10 to 15 percent of the yearly annual rent were banned for a brief period in 2020 by a new state law meant to strengthen tenants' rights. But the fees were made legal again by the state when the real estate board successfully won a lawsuit against the law last year. Even so, not all landlords are hiking the prices. Property manager Mark Weber of Weber Realty Management says he's capped rent renewals at 10% in hopes of keeping tenants in place in the 250 rental units that his company manages across Manhattan. I think if you're, you know, asking for a 50% increase or you double on the rent, I think that's where it gets a little crazy. It's just, it's just greed from what we're determining based off of inflation numbers and what the current market is. Um, and it just doesn't make sense if you're trying to renew apartments to offer a uh, 50% increase or, you know, the goal is you want a building where people enjoy living there and there's good camaraderie. And if you're dealing with, you know, everybody on kind of hot rocks thinking that their rent's going to double or go up 50%, that's just inhumane. Weber says that the 10% increase is high enough to keep pace with rising inflation without going beyond average market price in most neighborhoods. And he says it's smart business to keep turnover in his units low. Meanwhile, Emily Russell and Remy Arena are sitting in their apartment on Mulberry Street and searching for a new home online. They're hoping to stay roommates in Manhattan, but say they'd be willing to commute from Brooklyn or even Queens for the right place. I'm becoming kind of obsessive with going on Street Easy. They're both hunched over a laptop searching the real estate sites for a two-bedroom under 3000 a month. Oh, actually? Damn, that's pretty good. Wait, that's really good. (laughs) I will message. Wow, this one's actually great. East 82nd, 2400. I'm also assuming that there's a fee here, but I'm going to... Ooh, it's showing. So far, they say they've only found 11 apartments that meet their criteria, but they're determined to find a new home in the city for at least another year. Sarah Yokobitis, Columbia Radio News. While some renters are struggling with big rent increases, many live in a much sweeter situation. They live in rent-stabilized apartments where rent increases are capped each year. Elliot Schiaparelli explains how these apartments work and why they are so hard to find. Josh Mastel is a graduate student studying music composition at Columbia. He spent the past few months searching for an affordable one-bedroom apartment, and the first one he visited? I loved it. I mean, I was like, I couldn't believe for the price how big it was. It's a one-bedroom, under $2,000 a month. 
But as soon as he left the tour, the agent told him the apartment had been snapped up. And that happened again and again and again. In total, I wound up seeing like maybe eight or nine places. And maybe six of those, it was the same story where basically the same day I viewed them, I found out that they were taken. But one day, Mestel's partner was helping him search through Street Easy and sent him a listing that looked very familiar. It was the first apartment he had seen back on the market. And I like scrambled and grabbed my phone and called the number immediately. And I was like, hello, like, do you remember me? How much? A little over $1,500, half the average for a one bedroom in New York City. And as a bonus, he found out the apartment was rent stabilized. Landlords can only raise rents on stabilized apartments by a set percentage decided by New York's Rent Guidelines Board, which is usually much smaller than the usual rent hikes in the rest of the city. But these apartments are hard to find. When renters score a stabilized apartment, they don't want to move. Charles McNally is a director of NYU's Furman Center, which studies housing and urban policy. Uh, We know that occupants of rent-stabilized units have longer tenures uh, than those in market rate rentals. Even though rent-stabilized apartments make up half of the 2 million rental units available in New York City, they're in short supply when renters go apartment hunting. McNally says another problem with rent stabilization is that there's no incentive for landlords to fix anything because most of the time, no one is ever going to move. The big debate in cities right now is whether there are other ways to keep the working class in the city without controlling rents. How can you realize some of these you know, stability benefits, some of these economic benefits for renters without, you know, collateral consequences like, you know, long-term disinvestment and, and reducing the supply of rental housing. Rent control does set up a weird competitive situation, even inside the same building. Robin Shannon lives in the Bronx. She's been in her rent-stabilized apartment for over 10 years. In the beginning, I didn't think I would stay this long. Um, I really thought I would be buying a house by now. But she does stay because she has a one-bedroom in a great location for her with high ceilings and a large kitchen in a pre-war building. And she's only paying $1,096 a month. Amazing for her. Not so amazing for her landlord. Her landlord wants her out, and he's even offered her a smaller apartment in the same building. They could get more money for this apartment because my neighbors upstairs moved out, and then when another set of neighbors moved in, I found that they were pay- they actually paying more more than that. They're paying like $2,500 to live in the exact same apartment, one floor up on the fifth floor. In a rent stabilization world, that's just bad luck. There's no income test, so the family paying double might make less money than Shannon. That's why Charles McNally from NYU says that some cities are looking at alternatives to rent stabilization, where the city might say give out housing vouchers and outlaw giant double-digit rent increases during housing emergencies. We think that you know, pairing anti-gouging measures like that with targeted tenant-based subsidies provides the benefits of rent regulation without some of the collateral consequences. For now, he says, rent stabilization might not be perfect, but it's the only system New Yorkers know, and it would be hard to change. Rent stabilization is great if you if you have it, if, if you're lucky enough to have it. Uh, but if not, it you know, it's it's not just that you don't get that benefit, but, you know, you may be, it's possible you're facing more expensive housing as a, as a result. As the city's housing market continues to rise, the Rent Guidelines Board is considering raising rents on one-year leases between 2 and 4 percent. But that increase still pales in comparison to rents for market rate housing. Elliot Schiaparelli, Columbia Radio News. 
And now for the next in our commentary series, Uptown Radio's Claire Grunet shares a story about keeping control and about letting go of it completely. I'm not allowed to go on WebMD. My mother banned me years ago from going online and checking symptoms I had managed to overthink into existence. When I had a bad headache, it could be a brain tumor, stomach ache, likely something with a kidney. Getting a tick from the long dry grass in my mother's garden almost certainly meant Lyme disease. I think my sisters found my self-diagnosed hypochondria, borderline entertaining, borderline hysterical. And it made the whole situation even more unbelievable when I woke up one morning, about three years ago, unable to move. I had spent the night at my mother's place, and she halfway carried my 23-year-old body down to her car. We drove to the hospital where I spent the next many weeks getting tested for anything the doctors could possibly think of. They couldn't figure out what caused the constant fever, rashes, sore throat, and paralyzing pain in all of the joints of my body. At one point there was talk of lupus, and later a type of cancer called lymphoma. But eventually they ran out of tests to do. This was the message they gave me on the night that the cancer wing of the hospital had arranged for an outdoor orchestra to play a concert for the patients. I could see the sunset from my window, and as the melody of knocking on heaven's door began playing outside, I was pretty sure I was going to die. But as may have become clear at this point, I do have a certain flair for drama, and this was not the end. Instead, it was a chronic and rare type of inflammatory arthritis. Some only experience one flare-up in a lifetime. Others have frequent episodes. This is probably one of the worst messages you can give someone who has spent her life worrying about rare diseases and freaking out over the smallest of symptoms. I pictured rushing to the hospital over a minor rash and calling my doctor every time I have a sore throat. I had suddenly been given a very valid reason to worry for the rest of my life. I wish I could tell you here that, ironically, getting an extremely rare disease cured my hypochondria. That would be a good story, but it's also untrue. The catastrophic thoughts still enter my head, and they probably always will. But somehow, lying in the hospital bed I had dreaded for so long seemed to provide a kind of medicine. Previously, worrying had given me a false sense that I was in control. That if only I thought things through, I could prevent them from happening. But ultimately, I wasn't in charge. There was a strange new comfort in realizing that. And when I was forced to let go of the tight grip, in some way it felt like relief. It was after that I packed up my life and traveled 3,843 miles away from home to go to graduate school in New York. At first, both my doctors and my mother were reluctant to accept it, and my insurance company refused to provide me coverage. But I was determined to go because it seemed like the perfectly terrifying thing to do to prove to myself that I intend not to let fear dictate my life. And most days, I can still convince myself that that is true. Those are the days I go hiking upstate far away from hospitals. The days I walk barefoot on the little patch of grass near my house. And the days where I manage to push away the voice inside my head that tells me that the mole on my left shoulder definitely has gotten bigger. Clara says she hasn't worried much while being in New York, but she did manage to find some insurance. A new report from the worker advocacy group One Fair Wage says there's a gap between what Applebee's workers in different New York neighborhoods are paid. And that gap results in white workers being paid more. Julian Abraham headed to Midtown Manhattan this morning, where workers set up outside a shareholder meeting to protest the findings. 
It's 8 a.m. and protesters in matching bright orange t-shirts are gathered in a circle outside of a Marriott hotel on 59th Street across from Central Park. They're holding up black and white signs that read, Applebee's is racist. What do we The protest organizer, One Fair Wage, says the restaurants pay workers in predominantly white areas like Midtown $15 an hour, while in predominantly black areas like the Bronx, servers say they're making less. Ariel Edwards has been a server at Applebee's for about 15 years. She works in Portland, Oregon. And like many of the workers protesting here today, she came from across the country to join. A lot of the times our voices aren't heard. I feel like I wasn't taken seriously because I'm Hispanic. I was like the only Hispanic person up there. <laughs> Ariel says in a typical year, she makes only about $15,000. But she's so busy at work, she barely has time to see her kids. Often, they have to come see her at Applebee's if they want to spend time together. We deserve to be able to take our kids on those vacations, take them to go get the shoes that they want. But we can't because we are working for barely anything. According to census data, the cost of living, which includes rent, food, and utilities, is less expensive in the outer boroughs of Manhattan. For example, living in the Bronx means bills can be up to 45% less. And costs are one thing shareholders of Dine Brands, the parent company of Applebee's, are here to discuss today. Past the shiny gold doors of the hotel, upstairs in a conference room, shareholders will be holding a vote to decide whether to raise pay for some of the workers in the restaurants. Back outside, Natalie Chelko is representing One Fair Wage. Restaurants are not required to pay their workers the standard minimum wage in New York, $15, as long as those workers can earn tips. But Chelko's goal is to see all restaurant workers get that $15, including the ones who get tips. Well, I mean, I think it just really all goes back to corporate greed, you know? If, they don't, if they're not forced to do so, then they're not going to. That's why One Fair Wage is fighting to make it a law, right, that restaurants should be required to pay the full minimum wage to their employees. So that in Chelko says she's not sure what the outcome will be of the vote upstairs, but is optimistic. When asked for comment on what One Fair Wage calls racist pay practices, Applebee's, IHOP, and Dine Brand, the parent company, did not respond before airtime. As for the vote, the results will be released tomorrow. Julian Abraham, Columbia Radio News. And now, Uptown Radio Sarah Yokobitis shares how one accident changed the course of her life. I have accidentally been engaged for a decade. Ten long years. It's not what my fiancé and I planned to do when we got engaged after two years of dating, but it's what happened. We had every intention of getting married within a year or two when we got engaged in 2012. But later that same year after I started graduate school, my plans were changed by a freak accident. It happened on a gorgeous September day in New York City. I took my dog, Starbuck, for her evening walk as the sun began to set. We stopped at the bodega for red wine and trash bags, but as we headed home, her harness suddenly snapped. She panicked and bolted into the street during Manhattan rush hour traffic. I dropped the bags. The wine bottle shattered and red wine stained the pavement. I ran into the street, desperate to get to Starbucks, but my left foot buckled under me and I fell to the ground. Still terrified that my dog was going to be hit by a car, I managed to briefly stand up again before the joint swayed in the opposite direction and I fell again. I blacked out from the pain. I don't know how much time passed or how I got to her, but when I opened my eyes, I was gripping the fur around her neck. She was unharmed and completely unaware of the chaos she had just caused. 
An MRI revealed multiple torn ligaments and severe bone bruises in my ankle. I had surgery a few months later before learning that I had developed a rare neurological and autoimmune illness called complex regional pain syndrome, or CRPS. I had never heard of it before my own diagnosis, but basically, my sympathetic nervous system went into the fight mode of fight or flight when I was injured that day. Now my brain doesn't know how to turn those pain signals off. CRPS affects how the body processes pain, similar to phantom limb pain in amputees. It causes hot, burning neuropathic pain that turns my foot red and makes my joints ache. I left graduate school unfinished, and we moved back to the West Coast. I tried nearly every treatment I could find. Spinal nerve blocks, IV infusions of lidocaine and ketamine, injections to my surgical scars, mirror box therapy to retrain my brain. I did desensitization exercises, like rubbing a scratchy loofah on my angry foot. Most of them didn't work for me. Sometimes we'd try to plan the wedding, but I had a bad limp and couldn't walk without pain. I didn't know how I was supposed to walk down the aisle when I couldn't even go to Target without help. I finally started to get better when I gave up on searching for a medical miracle cure and learned how to manage my pain instead. I know this all sounds very Dr. Strange, but I had to stop seeing pain as something to be defeated and wiped out completely, and instead accept that it will probably always be part of my life. That sounds simplistic, but it's something I still work at almost every single day. I stopped seeing the pain specialist who had recommended procedure after procedure and found a new doctor. Five years after my injury, I was finally able to stop the opioid pain medications that I'd been taking. Chronic pain has a way of streamlining things for you. When you have limited time and abilities, you quickly learn what is truly important and essential to your life. I didn't know if my relationship would survive my illness. Sometimes when things were really dark, I wasn't sure that I would survive it. But we're planning a wedding for June. There's a box of invitations with little blue flowers sitting on my kitchen table waiting to be mailed. The dress is ready to be picked up from the bridal shop in Brooklyn. And no matter what happens, we're finally getting married this time, in sickness and in health. Sarah is finishing her graduate degree this month and will marry her longtime fiancé, Jason, next month in San Francisco. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm David Marquez. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. More on the high rent prices in New York City and the Good Cause Eviction Bill. And the city is tackling a record high mosquito population. These stories and more coming up. But first, these headlines. From Columbia... From Columbia Radio...
From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Elliot Schiaparelli. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol subpoenaed five Republican members of Congress today. The list includes House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. The Republican lawmakers had refused to voluntarily participate in the inquiry. The subpoenas ordered the representatives to appear before the committee at hearings in June. World leaders met at a virtual second global coronavirus summit. The United States co-hosted the event where President Joe Biden marked the milestone of a million COVID deaths in America. The president urged a renewed international commitment to fighting COVID-19 and ordered flags to be flown at half-mast to honor those who have died during the pandemic. Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, will get a second term in office. The Senate voted 80 to 19 in favor of his confirmation this afternoon. Powell was first appointed by President Obama in 2012 and elevated to chair by President Trump. North Korea is in the midst of the country's first reported COVID-19 outbreak. Officials declared a severe national emergency in the capital of Pyongyang. Officials have ramped up containment efforts after reporting the Omicron outbreak four days ago. President Biden is set to visit South Korea next week. Finnish leaders announced this morning that they're in favor of rapidly applying for NATO membership. The move was expected in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Finland shares an 800-mile-long border with the Ukraine. The Russian foreign ministry issued a statement that would that this step would inflict serious damage to Russian-Finnish relations as well as stability and security in northern Europe. Astronomers have captured the first image of the black hole at the center of our galaxy. The black hole is filled four million times the size of the sun. To capture the image, scientists used a powerful array of telescopes on different continents together called the Event Horizon Telescope. Elliot Schiaparelli, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm David Marquez. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. As we discussed earlier in the show, many New Yorkers think the rent in the city is too high. For years, the city has been facing an affordable housing crisis. As of today, one-third of households are severely rent-burdened, meaning they spend more than half of their income on rent. During the pandemic, legislation was passed to limit evictions, but those rules expired in January. The Good Cause Eviction Bill seeks to make many of those protections permanent. Chantel Destra reports on the bill's potential impact on the city's affordable housing crisis. Good Cause Now! Good Cause Now! Last week, housing advocates rallied outside of Governor Kathy Hochul's Manhattan office, calling on the governor to support the good cause eviction bill. As an upstate-downstate coalition across the state of New York, urging the governor, Kathy Hochul, to pass good cause eviction legislation now. 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 If passed, landlords would be forbidden from evicting tenants without reason, and tenants would have the right to automatic lease renewals. It would also cap rent increases at 3% or 150% of the consumer price index. Fannie Lou Diane is a housing advocate working with local grassroots tenant organizations. She says this work was inspired by her own housing struggles that began when she moved out of her family's place and into her first apartment. You know, I thought I was moving on up like the Jeffersons, but um, what I didn't know was that it would be a 
tough lesson that I would learn. And I ended up getting a slum landlord who refused to remediate toxic mold and several pest infestations. Diane says these conditions cause health issues, including sinus infections, fibroids, and gynecological problems. When she withheld rent pending repairs, the landlord evicted her. Diane spent the next three years living back home with her family. She says if good cause eviction had been in effect, she might have been able to stay in her apartment and hold her landlord accountable. It would give tenants the ability to contest substandard living conditions like I was doing without the retaliation behind that. This week, Diane is moving into a new apartment, but she says the past few years of homelessness have taken a toll on her mental health. She often wonders how her life might have been different if she hadn't been evicted. Good cause eviction is not just something just to save tenants from their landlords. It's something that saves lives. Real estate and landlord groups strongly oppose the bill, saying it unfairly burdens landlords and won't solve the problems in the housing market. Lincoln Echoes owns and manages a 14-unit apartment building in Brooklyn. Echoes is renovating several of the units, and last week he met with a contractor to go over the details. As they walked through an apartment, the contractor suggested replacing some stained floor tiles in the kitchen. Echoes is hoping to salvage them. He says the majority of the units are rent-stabilized, but he relies on the income of the three free market apartments to cover much of his overhead. If I don't have the revenue from those units, the cash flow from the, the rent-stabilized units would not cover my month-to-month operating costs. So the building or financially, I would collapse. It's, it's a recipe for destruction. Echo says the hefty hot water insurance and property tax expenses of his building are all covered by the free market apartments and that the rental increases outlined in good cause are not enough. 3% is not going to cover it. It's just an arbitrary number that sounds low enough to, to somebody in their head, but it doesn't reflect the economic situation of housing. And in the long run, he says, good cause won't help tenants either. It will exacerbate the problem because you either make it unaffordable for owners or you make it so that owners are fed up and exit the market. But many housing policy experts believe that in the short term, good cause will increase tenant protections for renters. Good cause is important in the, in the short term for putting limits on how much rents can go up year to year and giving people stability in their homes. But in the long run, it's important for uh, increasing people's confidence and ability to join in political action on behalf of renters. Samuel Stein is a housing policy analyst at the Community Service Society. He says it's going to take more than one bill to address the affordable housing crisis in New York City. We should always be skeptical of any single uh, solutions to the home, to the housing and homelessness crisis, any, any silver bullets. And so good cause won't fix everything. Good cause doesn't lower rents. Good cause doesn't raise incomes. It, there, there are fundamental aspects of uh, the housing question that good cause simply doesn't touch. Eric Kober is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and has a background in housing, economic, and infrastructure city planning. 
He agrees good cause fails to solve the affordable housing crisis. At its core, he says, it's a problem of insufficient supply. We have rapidly rising rents because there aren't enough housing units being built. And to use, to try to thwart that through uh, uh, rent regulation without dealing with the supply issues is just going to make the situation much worse. As it stands, it's unlikely the good cause eviction bill will get passed before the end of this legislative session in June. But additional lawmakers have recently come out in support of the bill, and they plan to reintroduce it in next year's session. Chantel Dasha, Columbia Radio News. Mayor Eric Adams says he has ghosts in his house. He's referring to Gracie Mansion, the over 200-year-old building on the Upper East Side that serves as the mayor's official residence. Adams revealed the haunting truth at a recent Yankees game. I don't care what anyone says. Uh, they're ghosts in there, man. <laughs> no, we just had a conversation about ghosts yesterday. You know, I've been in some haunt, haunted buildings in my life. And not, not interested in revisiting those. So. Now you see stuff moving there? or uh, All the time, man. Yeah. All, all the time. You know? You hear footsteps and all types of stuff. Listen, they're creeping around. So our reporter, Lucy Grindon, headed to the mansion to see if she could detect any paranormal activity. Alan Chemerinsky walks his dog Marshmallow in the park surrounding Gracie Mansion every night. When I meet them walking towards the mansion on East 88th Street, Marshmallow seems pretty calm. But Chemerinsky says that when they're in the park, Marshmallow always goes crazy. She might be barking at rats, he says, but he can't be sure. Who knows, because I don't see the rats. And she does actually usually pull me towards the mansion. Really? Do you think that she might be detecting supernatural uh, beings there? I'm not an expert, so I, I don't feel uh, able to, to say either way. About five seconds after Chemerinsky and Marshmallow walk away from me, I decide to follow them into the park to see if Marshmallow will detect anything. And I swear to God, when I turn around to follow them, they've vanished. Nowhere to be seen. I'm kind of freaked out. But outside the mansion, the NYPD officers standing watch are not even a little bit scared. Or if they are scared, they don't show it. If the mayor is hearing ghosts, like hearing noises of people walking around in the mansion, couldn't that possibly be an intruder? Isn't that a concern? The only response I get is a gate closed in my face. So if you want information about how the NYPD protects the mayor from ghosts, who are you going to call? One of the officers said I should call the deputy commissioner of public information. The only ghost expert I could find was John Deckers. He gives ghost tours of Greenwich Village. I met him last night in Washington Square Park. He believes in spirits and says that it's entirely possible Gracie Mansion is haunted. And it doesn't even have to be from a gruesome murder that happened there. You could die at, like, the ripe old age of 90, you know, of natural causes. But let's say maybe you had, like, a traumatic event that happened to you that happens at, like, a specific, you know, instance. Maybe your spirit will be drawn to that part because there's, like, a lack of closure for some reason there. Maybe somebody had a conflict with one of the mayors and, like, for some reason is drawn to that location. Deckers says that spirits can come back to haunt the places that cause them grief in life. So that means anyone who's ever gotten stuck in a hot subway car or been pushed around in Times Square or paid too much for their apartment might be pulled after death toward Gracie Mansion. I'll see you all there. 
Lucy Grindon, Columbia Radio News. It's officially mosquito season in New York City, and you're probably going to notice it. In recent years, record-breaking numbers of the insect have been plaguing the boroughs. More, more mosquitoes means more diseases, like West Nile virus. The city is trying to fight back to reduce the mosquito population. But as Claire Grennett reports, climate change makes that a complicated task. One September afternoon, three years ago, Doug Newton couldn't seem to get out of bed. It was actually our wedding anniversary. We were supposed to go out to dinner, and I couldn't, couldn't get up, and uh, I was just really tired. Doug lives in a Brooklyn townhouse with his family. He doesn't remember much from that day. His wife, Kathy Newton, says she thought he had the flu. He couldn't even sit up on the couch. He could sort, sort of just, <laughs> you know, fell over. Really? <laughs> so we went back to bed, and then he said, I don't think we're going to go out for our anniversary. <laughs> that night, Doug began to hallucinate, so they raced to the hospital. A doctor came in and said, uh, we're taking him off the antibiotics. It's a virus. It's West Nile virus. The effects of the virus kept him in the hospital for three months, and he says the illness still limits his mobility. I just cannot walk like a normal person. I'm very awkward. I'm out of balance, so I can't raise my, this arm very far. And I got a tremor, shaky hands. I'm an artist, and so that's no fun. The West Nile virus is a disease transferred from birds to mosquitoes, and then, as in Duck's case, sometimes to humans. Most people don't get any symptoms at all. Others experience fevers, headaches, disorientation, and extreme fatigue. And for some, particularly those over 50 or with weakened immune systems, the spinal cord or the brain can become infected, and that can be fatal. Duck was one of 10 New Yorkers who got the West Nile virus in 2019. Last year, that number was 21. Oliver Ellis and Tim is part of the Climate Change and Emerging Infectious Disease Working Group at Albany University. He says, as temperatures in the New York area rise, mosquitoes will thrive. So there's an optimum temperature range where we feel comfortable, but so has also activity in the nature, right? Mosquitoes have an optimal temperature range where they thrive the best and reproduce the best. That's why Tim expects to see a continued increase in West Nile cases in the Northeast. The city health department is tracking the rise in mosquitoes. They have an ongoing program of mosquito surveillance and control, which includes removing standing water in the city, putting larvicide in street drains, and educating the public on prevention of mosquito-borne illness. Another key component of their plan is spraying the streets of New York with pesticides. They have a big arm that just starts spraying in all directions, just leaving a trail of spray, and it's harsh, you know, and. You don't want them to be caught in it. Mitchell Cohen lives in Coney Island, and he says the trucks drive by his house spraying clouds of pesticides. When the city first announced they would start spraying for mosquitoes back in 1999, Cohen helped organize a group called the No Spray Coalition. He says the widespread use of insecticides can have unintended effects on urban ecosystems. What a stupid thing to do to think that the way of dealing with an ongoing disease day after day, year after year, to just spray massive amounts of chemicals. They don't even think what happens to the birds, what happens to the frogs, what happens to the dragonflies that eat mosquitoes. I reached out to the City Department of Health and they declined to comment on their use of pesticides. In their official mosquito control plan, they acknowledged that there may be negative impacts associated with spraying but they emphasize that pesticides are used only when it's necessary and only when spraying can reduce the risk of disease. 
Some researchers agree that blanketing neighborhoods with pesticides might be a necessary last resort, but only after trying more targeted methods of fighting insect-borne disease. Maria Diaguasa is a professor at the Department of Ecology, Evolution and Environmental Biology at Columbia University. She says controlling these diseases require a more nuanced understanding of the ways ecosystems are changing. As one example, she cites the effects of the recent boom in deer population. For example, deer overpopulation, and that is causing a lot of the tick-borne diseases, the very high densities of deer because there's no predators and we're providing excellent resources for them so they reproduce in, in big, big numbers. That's an example. The CDC reports that nationwide, mosquito and tick-borne disease cases more than doubled between 2004 and 2018. Climate change researcher Oliver Ellison Tim says that overall, insect-borne diseases will likely continue to increase in the near future, but the science remains uncertain. The lessons that we learned in the climate research community in general is that um, the more we are able now with our models to look at regional impacts, we can take into account more processes, more factors, and the story gets more complicated. In other words, warming causes ecosystems to change in complex and unpredictable ways. There are nonlinear effects that mm. makes our life more interesting, but also more complicated to predict or project what will happen with the growing warming. Maybe there will be more mosquitoes because of rising temperatures, but that increase could be cancelled out by changing humidity levels. High temperatures could cause a drought, causing bird populations to decline. And that's fewer birds to pass West Nile onto mosquitoes and then onto humans. So that's where these non-linearities in the system can become very complex and uh, <laughs> what will win, right? That, that's um, the question. And that uncertainty makes it hard to develop effective mosquito control plans for the future. Back in his Brooklyn garden, West Nile survivor Doug Newton reflects on the predicted increase in West Nile virus cases in New York and his hopes for the future. I wish we weren't having climate change. I wish we could stop using fossil fuels, and I feel very strongly about that. But with the situation as it is, all I can suggest is buying a can of off and using it. The health department will continue spraying pesticides throughout the city beginning by the end of this month. Clark Ronald, Columbia Radio News. After decades of decline, organized labor appears to be making a comeback. And New York City is a major hotspot. It's home to the country's first unionized Amazon warehouse and some of the first unionized Starbucks stores. Of course, New York is a liberal city where unions have strong support. But in its much more conservative suburbs, can this new labor movement find the same success? My co-host David Marquez went to Long Island to find out. When you walk into a Starbucks on Long Island, it probably looks like any other. There's the dim lighting, the roaring blenders, the teenagers snapping pics of their tricked-out frappuccinos. But behind the facade of sameness, something unusual is happening. I've been whispering about it with certain people for a very, very long time. Hannah Taustin is a 21-year-old Massapequa native, and she's organizing a union in the town's Starbucks. She's been working part-time as a barista for the past three years, and for the most part, it's been a good job. She says the company offers her generous benefits, and she has a warm relationship with her fellow baristas and manager. But Taustin has long had issues with corporate policies, especially during the pandemic. We're still very disappointed in the way that uh, coronavirus was handled by Starbucks. Plexiglass was taken down because it didn't match the aesthetic of the store very early on in the pandemic. 
to avoid drawing corporate attention to other Starbucks unionizing campaigns, Taustin decided to meet up at a Dunkin' Donuts. I asked her what else she wants to see change at Starbucks. She says a lack of seniority pay is another factor that pushed the store to register with the National Labor Relations Board in February. We see that like people who have been here for 12 years, more than that, some of us aren't getting paid as much as they should be. Like Some of them felt really failed, frankly, by Starbucks. When I met Taustin, the mail-in vote had just finished. She said she was moderately confident the vote would go in the union's favor. Over 60 Starbucks nationwide have already organized. Hundreds more have plans to do the same. But many of those are in college towns or cities like Minneapolis and Denver, which tend to lean liberal. Massapequa, though, is conservative, a red blotch in a heavily blue metro area. In the 2020 election, all of its precincts went to Donald Trump. But as it turns out, the political leaning of the labor movement has shifted drastically over its history. In the 1930s, communist and socialist parties often led militant strikes, like in Flint, Michigan. What observers describe as the most crucial battle in American labor history has practically shut down the entire American motor industry. What happens when a crowd of strikers grows crazy, when destruction becomes the order of the day? But Johnny Callis, who directs the ILR Labor Action Database at Cornell University, says that radical streak wouldn't last for long. What happened then is after World War II, you had the anti-communist purge and McCarthyism that really expelled um, the most left-wing leaders in the labor movement and really took away the best organizers that the labor movement had at the time who were communists. From the 1950s onward, the labor movement grew more conservative. And in Massapequa and surrounding areas, the right-leaning police union is now one of the strongest. But in recent years, the left-wing presence in labor organizing has begun to return nationally. Here's Bernie Sanders speaking at the Starbucks Workers' Unity Fest in Richmond, Virginia. Now, I understand that Starbucks calls their workers partners. Well, if you consider employees partners, you don't break their efforts to form a union. You treat them with respect. But weakening labor laws and the decline of heavy industry have gradually pushed most unions out of American life. Today, only about 10% of workers belong to one. Such small numbers can be a challenge for those looking to organize in conservative spots like Massapequa. The question really is, can you create a mass movement of workers from different political and especially ideological backgrounds to take action at their workplace? At least on Long Island, building a movement with workers with different backgrounds might not be as hard as you'd think. For one, the island has a relatively strong union presence, and has for decades. In Massapequa, there are strong unions for teachers, firefighters, and other municipal workers. It turns out labor's mixed political history can help organizers. Marianne Trishati, director of the Labor Studies program at Hofstra University, says Long Island as we know it wouldn't exist without that union density. Much of the suburbs here were built on um, union labor, you know, not just like the actual building, but people had union jobs and they bought houses and raised families. I know we have a, a reputation and I think rightly so for political conservatism, just in general, a kind of, you know, a white suburban kind of ethos. But there also is a considerable labor history here. And it's organizing around the bread and butter economic issues that labor traditionally cares about, like pay and benefits, that may help workers cooperate across the partisan divide today. Rob Terracini is chief negotiator for the Teachers Union in Comac, Long Island. He's a registered Republican who considers himself a moderate. 
with my positions, I'm in a lot of discussions regarding, you know, policies and contractual issues, and we, we don't really ever discuss the political side of it. Teresini says getting better pay and benefits for union members is the real focus. Job protections are important for everybody. I think everybody on both sides are, are coming together with regards to making sure that, you know, the workplace is safe and has good wages, good health care, and an equitable. And Starbucks organizer Hannah Taustein says the same is true. She identifies as a democratic socialist and reads feminist philosophers like Simone de Beauvoir in her spare time. She couldn't be more different politically from Turissini. But both, when it comes to organizing, have found common ground. Some of our like biggest supporters in terms of the union have been from co-workers who lean more conservative in their views. So I was honestly expecting the schism to be between liberal and conservative, but it ended up not being like that at all. Starbucks didn't respond to a request for comment about concerns from labor organizers in Time for Air. But for organizers, that strategy of unifying workers by focusing on the issues paid off. Big time. Just one day after I met Taustin in Dunkin' Donuts, Massapequa Starbucks became the first unionized shop on Long Island. David Marquez, Columbia Radio News. Next in our commentary series, Uptown Radio's Mark Gilchrist tells us how being near to death led to his non-traditional life. I haven't lived what most people would consider a conventional life. I've spent much of my life working, studying, and traveling in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and Latin America. I've always been in a hurry to find meaningful experiences. As I think back, so much of my eagerness to explore the world came out of the events of a single year. When I was seven, I lived with my parents in Omaha, Nebraska. I was in first grade. There was another boy in class who was having trouble with schoolwork, so my teacher asked me to help him, and we became friends. Early one morning, my mother rushed into my bedroom, pulled off my covers, and said that I needed to come into the living room quickly. There on the TV was live coverage. A boy had been hit by a school bus and killed. They announced his name. It was my friend. I was devastated. Part of me still misses him. Not long after, my great-grandmother passed. I remember watching her coffin being slid into a wall of a huge marble mausoleum. Witnessing this so stunned me, I had to go to school counseling to get out of my shell and start talking again. Finally, that same year, I tested positive for tuberculosis. I didn't have any symptoms, but I was put on a medication, started yearly chest x-rays, and told to never, ever smoke. My doctor warned me that I'd be lucky to live through my teenage years since I still had the seeds of TB within me that could activate at any time. All that left me with the feeling of being in a hurry, eager to start living. I was always a reader and read the paper voraciously every day. I knew there was a big world out there to experience. All this nearness to death made me wonder, if life could be so short and so unpredictable, how did I want to spend it? By the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to travel and see the world, though I didn't have a very specific plan. My first trip overseas, I volunteered on an archaeological dig outside of Amman, Jordan. When I was 23, I was invited to study at a think tank in Singapore. I spent the next 20 years, mostly in Asia, working in publishing, newspapers, and media. On reflection, if I had thought in my 20s that I would have a longer life, I might have taken the time to get a PhD and tried to become a professor or gotten an MBA or a law degree and worked my way slowly up the ranks of some major firm as another way of moving around the world. And I probably would have had more money and job security that way too. But I think I've had a more exciting and interesting life than I might have had if I had gone down some of those more traditional paths. And now in my mid-50s, I am still amazed that I have lived past the age of 30. I've come to welcome the serendipity of life. Some people collect coins or porcelain. 
I collect experiences. Mark Gilcrest studies strategic communication at Columbia University. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm David Marquez. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. Astronomers have finally been able to get a close look at the black hole in the center of our galaxy. And an investigation into new alternatives to to the stock market. These stories and more coming up. There's a black hole in the center of our galaxy. It's 14 million... 14 million miles across and a mass equal to 3.6 million suns. But we've never gotten a good look at it until now. Astronomers announced today that we finally managed to take a picture of that black hole. I spoke with Jordi Davilar, an astronomer at Columbia University. I asked him to describe the black hole and the telescope that was used to take the image. The significance is is that these black hole images help us to constrain general relativity. So they teach us something about gravity in the most extreme cases. Because like gravity here on Earth is relatively mild, but like close to a black hole, you just can't escape. Like even light cannot come out of a black hole because it's so massive and so compact. And in 2019, we already had the first image of a black hole uh, in the case of the galaxy Messier 87. That black hole is a thousand times more massive than the one that we looked at or presented today. You mentioned that the first image of the black hole that we saw was back in 2019. Why might it have taken us longer to get a picture of a black hole at the center of our galaxy? So the analogy that I really like is that in the case of Mercier 87, you're looking at like an old mature dog who is just nicely sitting in your living room. You want to take a picture of it. It's very easy. So now we have a young puppy running around and spinning around, trying to catch his tail and being extremely active, you try to take a picture of that. That's very hard, as we all are aware of. So this is also what's happening with Sagittarius A star in our galaxy. It's a thousand times less massive, which makes it a thousand times smaller. If there's a thousand times smaller, light propagates around also a thousand times smaller, faster. So Sagittarius A star changes its appearance every couple of minutes because everything goes a lot faster. And when you say change appearance, what exactly are you referring to? Yeah, so there is there is all kind of material flowing around the black hole, which is responsible for the emission that we see. So the way this looks like changes every minute, right? It's moving around as we are looking at it. You can uh, a black hole looks a little bit like water in a sink. If you put the tap open, you see the water swirling around your sink, right? This is also how a black hole looks like. So if you have a very slowly moving water stream. Things don't change that rapidly, but if this material is floating around fast, you will all see like kind of like wrinkles and bright spots and blobs of material that move around as time goes by. When New Yorkers hear about, you know, this this first image at the center of our, of our galaxy of a black hole, and they th- might think, well, how does this affect me? Like, what would you say to them? Well, luckily, black holes don't affect our daily life. We should be very grateful for that because they're extremely violent environments that would definitely fry everything out of you and, and make you feel horrible. So in that sense, it's great that they are far away. But our understanding of gravity already revolutionized the way we live. 
for example, with Einstein's theory of general relativity, your GPS chip in your phone wouldn't work, like literally. So like these fundamental questions that we ask ourselves, like really help also the technological advancement. Like we might not see it today, but we might see it in 50 years, like how this research will also impact us on a daily life. Thank you so much, Dr. Jordi Davlar. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. This is Uptown Radio. I'm David Marquez. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. The New York Police Department says that hate crimes are up 76% in the city this year. And last year, Asian American hate crimes quadrupled. That has some New Yorkers looking for ways to feel safer. Recently, hundreds of women lined the streets of Chinatown to receive free cans of pepper spray from a local community group. Linnea Arden reports on a team of Asian American women who are taking their safety into their own hands. When Serenia Sarisical was a young woman, she applied to be a New York City firefighter a year after 9-11. She went on to become the first female firefighter of Asian descent in the city. Sarisical projects toughness. She's tall, muscular, but she says that after some high-profile attacks on Asian women, she started to think about helping other women feel safe. It started from uh, the spa shooting in Atlanta and also from me being assaulted in the street and being able to fight my attacker. Sarisica wanted to help other Asian women prevent attacks, the way she had been able to stop her own attack through self-defense. She had the perfect idea, give women the tools to protect themselves. Now, you can't buy pepper spray in New York City, but you can give it away, and Sarisica knew a way to make that happen. So she created a self-defense kit that she began mailing out. I just posted, like, on my personal Instagram, um, free kits to any, like, New York City Asian Pacific Islander woman. And it just, like, went viral. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? This is, like, I was going to, like, mail out 20, like, you know, and then I had to cap it at 500. 500 kits cost her about $5,000. But even after giving away 500, she was still getting requests. She started to collect donations. When it became too much work for one person, she founded Angry Asian Women and enlisted other women to help her. So far, they've handed out over 1,600 kits this year. On a recent Saturday, Sarissa Cole was at UME Books a cozy shelter from the rain in Chinatown with fairy lights and dark wood shelves lined with Asian authors, handing out the kids with a bunch of supporters and one canine one. Who's this? I gotta gotta know. (laughs) Carla? You can pat her. Really? (laughs) Oh my god, she's so cute. The group had assembled pink and white paper bags with self-defense keychains and tools like a kubaton, a pencil-looking metal stick. They include a pepper spray, an alarm, a coupon, a hand sanitizer, a cute little poof, um, and in three different colorways, pink, black, and red. There were some cute, angry Hello Kitty stickers, too. But Sarisical says there are just too many women to give every woman who wants a kit one in New York. She receives hundreds of inquiries on her Instagram. But her work is also closely tied to race. Michelle Goh, who was fatally pushed on the subway tracks in January, was close in age to Sarisical. Gray Shang, an NYU student, was one of the 150 Asian women who received a kit that day. This is really nice, and I, I feel a lot better now I have it. 
Sean wanted more protection after a friend recently had to use her pepper spray in a subway incident and because she recently had an experience herself. When I was a freshman here, it was never an issue. Like, I had no, this wasn't something I was scared of, but I was walking to class and somebody pushed me down on the sidewalk and started cussing me out. And the NYU experience, getting hate crammed on the sidewalk, and then I had to go to class right after. So then I was just like <laughs> in the back of class. And so I feel like that's something new. The women I spoke to who had gotten the pepper spray say that it made them feel more confident in their own safety. But there are questions about whether giving weapons like pepper spray to someone without training is wise. Henry Z is the founder of the Dragon Combat Club. It's a self-defense training program that combines martial arts with situational awareness. Z told me weapons like pepper spray are really a last resort because it can drift and end up hurting people separate from the attacker. So the club offered to help the angry Asian women by linking their giveaways with some of his classes to teach them how to use their weapons properly. We have actually taken data on attacks across the United States, mainly in New York City and the Bay Area, and we found that 70% of those attacks are surprise attacks. Now, how do you deal with a surprise attack? A lot of it comes from situational awareness. Hi, we have free oh. self-defense classes. Oh, I'm okay. Thank you. Yeah, all right. Outside in the rain, Joy Lau was passing out flyers to people walking by the bookstore. Her friend had been attacked by the same man who's accused of murdering Michelle Goh shortly before the incident. She won't use the subway now and is always on watch, which she says is no way to live in New York. She got involved because she was tired of being a grown woman who needed to be chaperoned home. I've only taken maybe uh, six to seven classes, but I've been coming back because it gives me a confidence. And it's not necessarily whether or not I can wield a weapon. If you walk out there with, uh, with your shoulders squared, you, ha you walk with a certain confidence. Maybe I'm less of a target. That's what I'm hoping, that I'm a little bit less of a target now. In the meantime, the Angry Asian Women team says they'll keep making kits until the money runs out or there's no more need, whichever comes first. Linnea Arden, Columbia Radio News. New alternatives to the stock market are popping up in New York City, like mushrooms after a spring rain. One new exchange offers shares in commercial buildings. Another lets investors bet on the outcome of events, like who will win an election. But investing is almost always risky. Mark Gilchrist investigates why so many of these new markets have been appearing and if they increase investor risk. Marie Floro lives in New York. She's an analyst at a hospitality company. She invests in traditional mutual funds to save for retirement, but she also loves to trade cryptocurrencies. Currently, I think I'm invested in about like 15 cryptocurrencies on Coinbase. Coinbase is an app that lets users buy, sell, and store cryptocurrencies. The exchange listed on NASDAQ last fall. It's part of the new trend of alternative exchanges going more mainstream. I, I like it because it has volatility. It's perfect for day trading because you could always, like, when you know, when you enter and pull out at the right time, you could really make great money. And it's fun. Flora holds up the Coinbase app on her cell phone. It has brightly colored charts showing the value of each of the different currencies she owns. The app lights up like a slot machine. Her eyes dance with excitement when she looks at the display, even though she suffered a huge trading loss recently. Floro had $3,000. 
And she's lost almost half of that. This is a gamble. I personally love gambling. Um, even like the, I, I, I like the thrill of it. Um, I have had great returns. I mean, um, during the pandemic, it had become an extra source of income. And with this, you could always sell. Um, you, you could always know when to, to stop. But she hasn't stopped. She still trusts Coinbase. It's one of the many new exchanges enticing investors like Floro to bet on high-risk assets like cryptocurrencies. But many financial titans, including Warren Buffett, question if cryptocurrencies have any long-term value at all, which means investors could lose a lot. And Coinbase is regulated. Its listing on NASDAQ can make it appear that NASDAQ is approving the app. It's trustworthy, which is kind of difficult when you're in, in crypto. Um, I think that um, being listed in NASDAQ like makes Coinbase more reliable. Um, it has more credibility. It is like, you know, a publicly traded company. So I think, you know, they need to be transparent about their numbers and everything. Um, and I think that's, I, I prefer that. Professor Kevin Mirabile teaches finance at Fordham University's Gabelli School of Business. He says one reason for the growing popularity of the new exchanges is the wealth gap in the U.S. It's created a sense of despair among many young people. So they feel the system is rigged against them and favoring the wealthy. And that's made do-it-yourself investing with alternatives like Coinbase more popular. Some people talk about these exchanges and these products as an extension of the Occupy Wall Street movement. That this is really a, a movement away from traditional structures because the younger generation uh, wants to be independent of the rules and structures that their parents and their parents' parents established for them because they believe that some of them are broken. Mirabile says young investors are skeptical of traditional offerings like mutual funds. They're willing to take a gamble, and often they think it's the only way they can get ahead. So as a result, the get-rich-quick scheme, the make-a-quick-investment, let's-all-follow-the-crowd approach to investing has become very popular. Lex Markets is another of the new investment options. It sees itself as offering investors an opportunity to participate in a sector that historically has only been open to the wealthy or corporations. Real estate. It lets owners of expensive buildings such as office towers, warehouses, and apartment buildings sell small pieces to raise cash for just $250 a share. But there's a potential problem. Building owners tell Lex Markets what they see as the value of their property. That means the owner of a $10 million skyscraper could tell the app that its tower is worth $20 million and try to overly inflate the price that everyday investors would pay for their small slice. Jesse Dougherty is Lex Market's co-founder. He says things like this are possible, but the company is on the ball to stop it. Yeah, so we're definitely super conscious about that. And, you know, we do throw out most of the buildings that come at us because of this exact thing. Our diligence team takes a look at the tenants of the building, expected cash flows, the risks, and then if we uh, can get to an evaluation we agree with the owner on, and it's, you know, the type of asset we want to take to market, then we proceed with the offering. And then there's Kalshi, a new market also out of New York City. In some ways, Kalshi seems more akin to gambling than traditional exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange. You invest by placing a bet on a future event, like whether it will rain next week in Iowa. Each wager costs less than a dollar, but the losers get no money back. There are other ways to use the app. Investors can try and sell bets they've made ahead of the date, but that can be complicated to figure out for the average investor. Kalshi says on its website that its top 10% of traders win 59% of the time. Translation, investors with expertise win disproportionately against newbies. 
When you invest in traditional stocks, even if the prices go down, you still have something. But when you lose on Calshi, you've lost your entire investment. Professor Joshua Mitz at Columbia Law School is an expert on capital markets. I asked him if platforms like this could be dangerous for average investors. I think the question of whether we should prohibit zero-sum uh, trading in general is a question uh, really having more to do with how we think about gambling in society. Uh, it's, you know, it's long, it's sort of a part of the human DNA, if you will. Uh, casinos have been around for a very long time. Mitz says it's hard for the government to pick and choose what investors can and can't invest in. Still, this is the first time the Commodity Futures Trading Commission has authorized a market like Kelshi. Marie Floro, a cryptocurrency trader, says that betting on events on Kalshi sounds exciting, but it seems too risky right now, even to her. But even with interest rates rising and her portfolio plunging more than 40% in recent weeks, she is still committed to her Coinbase app trading. Yeah, I lost money, but I've also already gained last year, so pretty much this is my play money. I'm okay with a gamble for now. Um, I weigh the risk and reward, and I think in the long run it's going to pay off. And soon... Flora will have more places to invest. This fall, CoinCheck, a cryptocurrency trading platform in Japan, is also expected to list on NASDAQ. During 2020, there were 11 million monthly Google searches for ASMR. It's a phenomenon that's grown and spread during the pandemic, and it stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Listeners say they feel a tingling sensation as they hear recordings of ambient sounds like tapping, whispering, and drinks being poured. ASMR is most often available on YouTube. Hey there. Emily Schutz spoke with creators to find out how to succeed as an ASMR artist. Searches for ASMR are at an all-time high. The calming effects likely drove the surge in interest during a stressful time globally. The popularity is the reason Maryland resident Kelly Lewis recently made ASMR her full-time job. She began producing her own ASMR content part-time after she listened to other creators to de-stress back in 2016. Now, she has over 70,000 subscribers on YouTube. Hello, 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 People will pay for tingles. Top creators earn over $1 million per year. Some have grown so successful that they have their own manager and publicist to help with their PR. Other artists go to people's homes and perform live, providing a completely customized experience. There are also other opportunities to do ASMR as a career. Even Warner Music produces ASMR content. Although Lewis, known online as Kelly Belly ASMR, doesn't make a million dollars, the pandemic brought her financial stability. I kind of knew that it was going to be something that would be able to support me financially. I think for a lot of people who have a lot of um, subscribers and a lot of viewers, like they definitely are doing fine. Like that's definitely a, a lucrative career for people. She acknowledges that the past few tumultuous years boosted a lot of ASMR artists or ASM artists careers, including her own. I saw during the pandemic, I think there was a lot of need for ASMR. And so there were a lot of creators that came onto the scene. They were trying to keep up with the demand from viewers like Inez Leong. Leong is a photographer based in New York City. She started listening to recordings of typing, tapping, and whispering during the pandemic to stimulate human connection and fall asleep. That's when the ASMR videos start showing up, especially for co-working 
environment, people whispering because you miss that interaction. So anecdotally, ASMR calms people down and helps those like Leong, who would otherwise be tossing and turning all night, to do this. Carl Bazil is a neurology professor at Columbia University, specializing in sleep disorders. He calls ASMR a tool that could conceivably help the busy mind. ASMR and things like it are kind of a form of self-hypnosis. You're concentrating on something else and distracting your own brain, which is really the trick. And there's no magic to that particular technique. I do have a couple of the YouTube clips of ASMR. I'm like, you can try this. Still, there's not much concrete research on the benefits of ASMR or why it works. Regardless, ASMR creators like Kelly Belly seem to have figured out what their viewers like and how to succeed. During that time, a bunch of people just like went crazy with subscribers. On YouTube, the more subscribers you have, the more money you earn through ads, selling merchandise like t-shirts and tumblers with logos on them, and brand partnerships. Brands reach out to creators to market their products. Oftentimes, these brands focus on relaxation and wellness, like Kindred Black, which sells a $125 jar of Tranquility Body Oil. Kindred Black makes a variety of oils, perfumes, salves, and different natural treatments. Andrew Smith teaches marketing at Suffolk University. He studied ASMR. One of the interesting things about ASMR is that it, it's such kind of a, a broad blank slate as a, a medium for creation. It provides a lot of opportunities for uh, any sort of product that can kind of play a role in, in delivering that experience that ASMR creators are, are hoping to provide for their audiences. ASM artists whisper brand deals as listeners drift off to sleep. Kelly Belly works with a perfume brand. Get into the video. I want to thank today's sponsor, Scentbird. Scentbird. So I have a little clip that I'm going to show you guys. These methods aren't a particularly steady source of income for Kelly Belly, so she also has a Patreon, where people buy custom videos and gain access to exclusive ASMR content. But in order to make money in these ways, creators first have to produce good content. Jennifer Bazell, aka Jenigan ASMR on YouTube, is a small creator in the tri-state area with a little over 5,000 subscribers. But the content she offers is different from the typical view of ASMR as a source of stress relief. She says her most popular videos feature a mean girl role play. Specifically, one titled Sassy Halloween Demon Stuffs You With Candy First, did well. Allow me to introduce myself. I am the Demon Genificus. The more outlandish the content gets, the better it performs. I didn't realize people liked videos where people were like mean. And my sister pulled up one where she was like, yeah, they call her like sassy or whatever, but it's like she's just being rude to the viewer. And I was like, no way. And so I sort of put out one. I think it was when it was like goth girlfriend is like rude to you or I don't know, something like that. And that one also shot up really fast. Right now, Jen again is a dance teacher and doesn't make much money from YouTube, but she hopes that will eventually change. As she's continued to create content, she's invested in equipment to improve the quality of her videos. Cameras, microphones, lighting equipment. She's spent around $1,000. ASMR fans can differentiate between what makes a good and bad video. 
Emma Stavill is an ASMR fan who likes whispering videos. She's also a musical theater major at NYU who appreciates high production values. As you improve and keep working, your setup will improve and you can afford like better microphones, better quality. But, you know, something as simple as like turning off the AC in the background. Stavill says she thinks high or even decent production values make all the difference. Viewers say quality is important, but they also care about the content, and that's where each ASM artist differs. Some creators do comedy. Others type on a keyboard. Jen again does Mean Girl. Kelly Belly says she specializes in aggressive ASMR, like this. It was so different than the regular slow stuff, and I felt like it it more matched my personality and like what I would want to bring to the table in terms of ASMR. So I was like, Kelly, like this is your chance. Like you gotta you gotta get in there before this blows up. Kelly Belly was ahead of the crowd when she started in 2016. At the time, there were an estimated 50,000 ASMR YouTube channels. Now, it's estimated that there are around 500,000. Each creator is trying to stand out and make a living. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Emily Schutz, Columbia Radio News. In the final commentary piece of our season, Uptown Radio's Lucy Grendon tells us about the most surprising things you'd find if you searched her backpack. I carry a dice game around with me at all times. It's a simple game with straightforward rules that combine probability, strategy, and pure chance. What's the name of the game, you ask? It's called Yahtzee. All you need to play Yahtzee are paper scorecards, pens, and five dice. Actually, all I need are the pens and the dice because I have the scorecard memorized. It goes ones, twos, threes, fours, fives, sixes, bonus, three of a kind, four of a kind, full house, small straight, large straight, Yahtzee, and chance. At my parents' house in Los Angeles, we keep our scorecards, our dice, and two blue ink Pilot Precise V7 Yahtzee pens wrapped in a green placemat in a kitchen drawer next to our other miscellaneous stuff. We've got yellow highlighters, binder clips, postage stamps. Most people would just call this drawer the junk drawer. In my family, it's the Yahtzee drawer. When I'm home, I play Yahtzee with my mom at least once a day. Sometimes we talk with each other while we play, but other times we play because we're too tired to talk anymore and we just still want to spend time together. We'll be sitting at the kitchen counter and one of us will say to the other, do you want to play Yahtzee? And the answer is always yes. Sometimes when I'm not at home, my mom will sit at the kitchen counter and play Yahtzee all by herself. She calls it Yahtzee Solitaire. I've tried it too, but it just makes me sad. For me, the point of playing Yahtzee is to connect with another person. I'm in grad school right now studying journalism in a pretty tough program. I'm often so overwhelmed with work that I feel like I don't have time to connect with other people. Getting all my assignments done sometimes just feels impossible. So I keep my head down and I try to plow through, which can be pretty isolating. Earlier this semester, I had this one really bad day. I knew I hadn't done a very good job on my latest story, I was drowning in deadlines, and I was just feeling down on myself and pretty lonely. After my class ended that night, I stayed behind to do some more work. Another student, David, was the only person left in the classroom with me. We'd both had a long day, and he probably just wanted to go home. But once we'd both finished what we were working on, I turned to him and I said what I always say to my mom. Do you want to play Yahtzee? 
I really expected David to say no, but he said yes. So I reached into my backpack, I pulled out my dice, and I taught him how to play. He was a total natural. And more importantly, he loved it. Since then, we've played a few more times, and we've become pretty good friends. I can talk to him when I'm having a difficult day, and I can be honest about feeling overwhelmed by school. When I ask someone new if they want to play Yahtzee, it's really an invitation to friendship. I hold on to all the scorecards from the people I've taught to play over the years. I keep them in my backpack with my pens and my dice in a small, clear old Ziploc bag. I have seven scorecards now from Cecilia, Elena, Dylan, John, Caroline, Isabella, and now David. Carrying those filled scorecards helps me to feel less alone, like my friends are with me, but the blank scorecards are really important too. They remind me to keep myself open to the possibility of new connections. After grad school, I know that I'll still be busy, and I'm sure I'll sometimes feel overwhelmed and alone, but I'll keep carrying Yahtzee in my backpack, and hopefully I'll find people to use the blank scorecards. Lucy Grindon says if you'd like to play, let her know. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Linnea Arden. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Sarah Yokobitis. Our day reporters were Lucy Grindon and Julian Abraham. Director Clara Sophia Daly led our studio production team with Clara Gurnett and Emily Schutz. Our web editor, Mark Gilchrist, got the stream live to the web. Elliot Chaparelli produced the news, senior editor David Newtown, and assistant editor Chantal Dustra led our copy team. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Robert Smith, Ben Shapiro, and Haley Zhao advised our staff. I'm David Marquez. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. Uptown Radio is live on Thursdays at 4. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening to our last show of the year. Until next time, you can always find us on uptownradio.org.